Hey everybody, this is Justin Treadway, and welcome to the first official episode of Super Friends. Uh, it's pretty exciting. We have the Pro Tour historian himself, Brian David Marshall, with us. Uh, how are you doing, Brian? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I got two cups of coffee in me this morning. I'm uh, feeling fine. Oh man, you are a, cu- a cup ahead of me. That is not fair. And they're big cups. They're very big cups. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess what I want to start with is the the name, the Pro Tour historian. How did that come about? How did you become the face of the uh, Wizards live events and basically just the Pro Tour historian himself? Well, uh, the Pro Tour historian's um, title is, I mean, it's an official title. It's not actually a nickname. I actually am contracted with Wizards as the historian, and it's tied to the uh, Pro Tour Hall of Fame and the duties associated with curating the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I started doing it, I guess, 2005 which was the first year that the Hall of Fame uh, started. So when you guys were trying to get that off the ground, what what exactly were you conscious of doing? Like, what was what was the hardest thing about getting that going? I think trying to understand what was going to be important uh, in terms of uh, what people were going to vote for, finding the balance between uh, a ballot that is made up of, you know, current players and <clears throat> Excuse me. And people who are, uh, observers of the game and involved in the game, like, you know, where, where, where do the judges come in in terms of balloting? Where do players come in in terms of balloting? And, uh, and, you know, would, and would the older guys get in? Like, you know, is, is Sean Hammer Renier, uh, you know, a, a Hall of Famer or is he just kind of a guy who, you know, did really well at the beginning of the Pro Tour? Like, how, how important was that? It was kind of curious where people were going to put the emphasis. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I guess that's that's probably pretty interesting too, because I, I think a lot of times in sports as well, like whoever's doing well currently is who's on your mind, and people who came years before you set up the organization, it's it's hard to remember those people. No, there, there's definitely a struggle with recency. Like, I, I really uh, feel that Steve O'Mahony-Schwartz has gotten slighted in terms of uh, Hall of Fame balloting, like he's come close a couple times. Uh, part of the problem is he and Chris Bakula have been, I think, splitting ballots. To sort of, they're, they're sort of the same era of player. Mm-hmm. I think that if you're gonna pick, I, I, I love both guys dearly, but I think if you're gonna pick one of them, it's clearly Steve. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chris, you know, Chris did a little more of the, you know, did a lot more of the writing and contribution stuff, but he just has this insane resume. He just had the, he made the mistake of, you know, being friends with John Finkel at a time where John Finkel was the best player in the world and. So Steve was either the second or the third best player in the world. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, winning in, in the the Hall of Fame, how do you feel about players who are consistently top eight finishers but never get that win? Do you feel that the Hall of Fame should represent only people who have achieved multiple wins or even one win? Or how do you feel about that? I mean, there are people in the Hall of Fame without any wins, right? Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I was just curious because I, I know some people, some people view it as, you know, if if you haven't ever won the entire thing, then it just you shouldn't even be considered. I, I don't, uh, I don't think that's, I don't think that's. Uh, I, I certainly think wins factor into the equation, but um, I think that there's a lot of criteria that you can choose from. You know, you can. It's it's open to, to individual interpretation. I, I I like a win. But it's certainly not a, a game breaker for me. I think people who, you know, 
Uh, you're certainly not going to look at Paulo, let's say Paulo Vito Damaderosa was eligible prior mm-hmm. to his win in San Juan. Right? I, I don't think there would, there would be any question that he was just one of the dominant players of his era. And, you know, there's some degree of variance once you get into the top eight. You know, it's kind of like, um, yeah, I don't know if you've ever read Moneyball by, by Mike Lewis, where he talks about the Oakland A's front office and sort of how they, you know, handled that team and, you know, this was a team that just consistently got into the playoffs under, uh, you know, at the time this book was written. And it'd be like, sure, they, they lost sometimes, but that was, that was just kind of the nature of a single elimination tournament. Right. You know, I think, I think that the thing, I, I'm much more interested in, uh, as, as I look at players and, and look at their careers, I'm much more interested in top 16s and top 32s even than I am in necessarily the wins. It's like the people who are just consistently at the top tables in the, you know, last couple rounds of the tournament are, are the players that are just, that tend to be the, the truly great ones. You know, the younger Birgishmas of the world. Yeah, and you know, and there are a, a ton of players who just have a frightening consistency of placing in top 16, just event after event. Yeah. Which actually kind of brings me to my next point. Uh, the Star City 5Ks, have been incredibly successful and you've seen a ton of guys just really come alive there and just consistently finish in the top eights week after week. Yeah. Now, how do you, how do you feel stuff like that should affect whether or not you are considered for the hall of fame? Cause obviously that is not a wizards sponsored event. That's not the pro tour. Well, I mean, they, a lot of those guys aren't on the pro tour. Right. So, uh, you know, the thing is that once, once they get to the pro tour, or are on the pro tour for 10 years as, uh, you know, the eligibility requirements go. I mean, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's nice. I mean, when you, when you talk about the pro tour hall of fame, we, we, we don't, we barely look at juniors pro tours. We barely look at masters. We barely look at type one pro tours, type one championships, uh, the junior super series. So I don't, I don't, I mean, as, as impressive as doing well in those events are, I don't think that that's going to be a, you know, uh, major boost for someone's pro tour Hall of Fame candidacy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I was just curious just because, you, oh, sorry. Star City things are going. I wouldn't be surprised if there'll be a Star City Hall of Fame at some point. So. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I cer- it's certainly within their power to do that. Um, all right. So the other question I had uh, for you about the your start with Magic is, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your role with Neutral Ground? Um, sure. Uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of like tied back to my, uh, you know, origins with the team. I, I, I was originally a comic book guy. That mm-hmm. was, that was my thing. I, I owned a publishing company. I wrote comic books and, uh, you know, had a, had a little sort of like a minor in public relations and was working with a chain of comic stores in New York called Jim Hanley's Universe, uh, organizing events and signings and, promotions for them. And uh, since I played games, I would also get handle a lot of the gaming questions that came in. And, you know, we were ordering new products and people kept coming in over the summer of 1994 and, um, you know, physically accosting us because we didn't carry magic. <laughs> I was, I was literally violently accosted over the game. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a dangerous game. Yeah. This was, this was like, so 94. So like, I guess, uh, beta had just gone off the market and unlimited was out. And so 
you know, you could still get, you know, uh, a mox out of a sealed deck. You know what I mean? You could still get yeah. Ancestral. I, I remember vividly opening those cards. Um, and so we started carrying the product and it was just selling out like crazy. And then, uh, again, cause I was, I was organizing events there, you know, a lot of people. So we started talking about running tournaments. There was someone who would run a, a tournament at the South Street Seaport that I knew that had done pretty well, but it was like kind of loosely organized. And I and two of the other managers in the, in the store decided to go off on our own and run a, tournament for a set of Arabian Nights, which, you know, by the time we, we rolled around, this is like Thanksgiving now of 1994, uh, and we, we decided to uh, run a tournament, and uh, we got like 300 people showing up, which was which was pretty amazing, and, you know, we had to figure out how to run single elimination, and we had to figure out brackets and all that, but it was, it was very successful. We, you know, found a judge, and, you know, uh, and, and, and no one would go home at the end of the tournament. Right. It's like we're done with the tournament and just no one would leave. Like people would just stay there and they were trading and they they wanted to play in more events. And, you know, we invented the side event, <laughs> you know. Sure. Uh, you know, we're like, OK, well, here's another tournament for everybody eliminated in the first round. And here are these, you know, we, we ran grand We ran like 100 person grand melees. And uh, our next tournament, which we ran, uh, I guess, in February, had over a thousand players. And was crazy. I mean, it was just like more people than we could ever possibly imagine seeing in one place. Uh, which was, and it was only for a set of legends. <laughs> <laughs> only. Uh, and then, uh, and then at that point, I just was hearing people talking. They were like, just like, so wistful. They were like, oh man, that was just awesome. I just got to hang out with people who play magic all day and I, I got to trade. I wish I could just play in magic tournaments every day. And, you know, uh, a little light bulb went off over my head and I was like, man, I, I'll bet you we could, you know, the way, the way stores were set up at that point, the tournament center didn't exist, right? Like there were game stores that would, you know, throw a tabletop over a bunch of like back issues of Dragon Magazine and you, you know, two on two. <laughs> but like there wasn't, there wasn't, you know, like game space was secondary. Mm-hmm. So we, we created neutral ground, uh, to have a place where people could go every day and, the game space was primary and the retail was secondary. We, what we actually sold was access to the space. So the way it worked when we opened neutral ground was it was a private club, uh, with $250 annual membership or $35 monthly membership or $7 a day, uh, admission. And, uh, you know, that included that admission fee included like tournament entries to some extent, unless it was like sealed deck or something. And then, uh, we also, uh, or, or you could, I think, I think you could spend $20 on retail and get a free entry for the day. Huh. That's, it's just so, it's so funny to, to be able to talk to you about this because growing up on the East Coast, you know, growing up in Pennsylvania, um, you know, I started it from the beginning playing Magic and I remember hearing about Neutral Ground and like I never, I never got to go there, but it was just, it was always considered to be like the coolest thing around. It was, it was actually pretty awesome. Like I, you know, I, I've, 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 I've fantasized about reopening a store, but it's like you would never open a game store knowing how much work it is to open a game store. Yeah, I'm sure. Like you can only open a game store not knowing. Yeah, well, I've, I had a friend who opened a game store and immediately stopped liking games, which was the, uh, the collateral there, because he never got to play. It was just like watching people play. I play, I play much, much more 
since I mean I sold I sold Neutral Ground in I think 2001, maybe maybe early 2002, uh, and it stayed open until 2008. But you know, uh, and yeah, and w- once I sold it, I got to play in in I got to play far more Magic. Yeah, I'm sure. So, um, the next thing I want to ask you is, you know, you've gotten to go to so many places uh, with the Pro Tour and with Wizards in general. Where's the best place that you've been with them? Like, where where did you enjoy being the most? Uh, it is a couple of, couple of different ways to answer that question, I guess. Uh, Pyrus was amazing. Just recently, or uh, just recently? I mean, the, just recently it was it was really nice. The first time I went was amazing because I. Uh, brought my wife with me and she got out there like the Sunday or the Saturday of the pro tour. So just as the pro tour was wrapping up and then we just rented an apartment per week and lived in Paris and it was pretty phenomenal. That does uh, sound like a pretty sweet deal. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, you know, probably not something we would have, I mean, you know, certainly could have done it. I just don't know if we would have done it without that, uh, opportunity. Uh, same thing with Hawaii. Uh, you know, very similar, uh, response. Hawaii is just kind of amazing and, you know, a chance to get there and, uh, have a, have a free trip there is pretty amazing. But, um, uh, I think in terms of, I mean, I love Japan, <clears throat> but, uh, I, I think Singapore was probably the most like interesting, uh, yeah, I mean, for me, it's all about food. So, like, <laughs> Singapore, Paris, uh, even Hawaii was all just amazing food. So Singapore was pretty amazing, though, also. What is uh, good to eat in Singapore? What was the what was the best thing you had there? Well, Singapore had just this uh, 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 night market for food. So it's just like, uh, you know, a hundred different food stands all in this one area outdoors. And, you know, you order and you sit down and someone brings your food to you. I mean, I had, like, Chili roasted stingray wrapped in banana leaf. <laughs> so, you know, just a pretty standard meal. Yeah, just a pretty standard, you know, fast food from some guy setting up in a, you know, booth on the street. Sure, yeah, so it's it's basically Arby's, right? You went to yeah, Sing- Singapore yeah. Arby's? Okay. I had cheese sauce, obviously. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I never understand the sort of uh, sub-theme of Domino's Pizza that goes on in the magic community on Facebook and Twitter, you know. Like, there's so much amazing food out there, like, wherever you go. Yeah. Brian, I don't understand most of the things I've seen eaten at a magic event. (laughs) So. so. Um, All right. So, speaking of Pro Tour, this is probably going to be even harder. What is the best Pro Tour story you have? Like, what is just (laughs) a good antidote you have from a Pro Tour experience? Oh, boy. Uh, So, I've got to cross off all the ones I can't tell. Uh, wow, that, that's actually a really tough question. I, so I've, I've got a, uh, it's kind of a, kind of an oddball story, but it's, uh, ties back to the Pro Tour Hall of Fame. And, uh, I don't know, a lot of people who are listening to this will probably not have even heard of Scaff Elias, but Scaff is the guy who, uh, created the Pro Tour. He was one of the first employees with, uh, of Wizards of the Coast. He's a, uh, Worked with Richard going back to Richard Garfield going back to their college days. He was an original playtester of Magic, and was the guy who really had that vision of, you know, seeing professional Magic happen. You know, really that aspirational model of of you know 
uh, intellectual athleticism, you know, which was what they had talked about when they originally started the, the Pro Tour. And uh, when we did the Pro Tour Hall of Fame, uh, he came out for the first induction ceremony in Japan. But mostly actually to watch uh, John get inducted because he was he was really good friends with John and uh, the two of them had a you know a, a very warm relationship and uh, and Scaff, Scaff is a, an interesting character he's very combative and constantly like one of these guys who's like you know he's always like posing these sort of impossible dilemmas like you know you could uh, you know if you could trade in like some multiple of IQ points for one inch of vertical leap how many IQ points would you trade in? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, talking about the mythical ability to make a slice of pizza appear in your hand at any one time, but you can't profit from the sale. Like all, all you can do is you can generate pizza at any time, so you could eat. Right? Like you're, you're never going to be hungry, and you could always eat a slice of pizza for the rest of your life. How much would you pay for that? You know, like, and then just no matter what answer you give him, you're wrong. Right? <laughs> So, sure. so he and uh, he and John are uh, arguing about urinal etiquette. All right. Uh, and so, you know, the idea that uh, when you, you know, when you're using the urinal, you know, you you always sort of go one away, right? Like you always want to be one over from someone. Yes. And so, like, you go to the middle urinal, or you go to, like, let's say there's five urinals, you go to the middle urinal, or you go to the far left or the far right, right? Yeah. And, in an empty urinal. And um, so they're arguing about this, and then, you know, it's like at some point they uh, people get up to, to leave and go somewhere, and they're like, oh, you know, i got to go use the bathroom. So they, the two of them go into the bathroom, and there's five urinals. And John, being kind of the mischievous guy he is, laughs and goes to the second urinal from the right. <laughs> All right. right? And he's like, <laughs> you know, see? You know, and Almost on cue, two Japanese businessmen walk in, sort of yammering at each other, and they walk and they just get up on either side of John <laughs> without any thought whatsoever about it. Like no, no. And then they're just like they're just leaning into John to talk across his torso, <laughs> right? And just like staff just cracking up, right? And to, 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 that, that's actually one of my favorite Pro Tour stories. It has nothing to do with the Pro Tour itself, but it's sort of like illustrates the, the, the sort of uh, mischievousness and sort of the intellectual competition that goes on and just the stupidity of it sometimes. What is the worst Rich Hagen line you've ever heard while commenting with him? His puns oh. are just... What sticks out in your mind is like just the biggest groaner you've ever heard from him? Uh, honestly, I have um, mental scar tissue. <laughs> and I... I, I they, they sort of all uh, grown together into one. I, I, I don't even know if any one of them stands out to me. It's like you've been in an abusive relationship and you I, don't I even have, notice yeah, it anymore. Sort of, like, what, what, do you, what do you tell a BDM with two black eyes? Uh, I have, like, blackouts around that. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like a body blow. I was just like, yeah. oh, Rich, come on. He, he, worked, he worked hard at those, too. He really, he really, he really loves a pun. Oh, I know. Apparently, the magic community in general is is really into it. Yeah, it's it's all like some uh, group effort to drive Josh Bennett over the cliffs of insanity. Is <laughs> he he as much as Rich loves a pun, Josh hates a pun. Yeah, 
So. All right, so I like to segue into just a little bit uh, more casual magic stuff before we move on to uh, some comic book stuff, because, man, believe me, we are going to talk about some comics. <laughs> um, I'm kind of going to be asking everybody this, just because I think it's it's really interesting to hear what people say. But anyway, I was just curious, what are your thoughts on Planeswalkers? Uh, I mean, I like powerful cards. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I like playing with powerful cards. I, I have probably a slightly different relationship with the game than a lot of people in terms of like acquiring cards. You know, it's a little easier for me. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I don't have that, you know, I, you know, I, I have my four Jace the Mind Sculptors, you know. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You know, if I, if I didn't, I would probably be a little more, uh, you know, contentious about that. I, I, I like them. I enjoy playing with them. I think that there's, you know, um, they always do something very powerful. Like, I, I recently started playing with Liliana Vest in my uh, Tezzeret deck. Mm-hmm. You know, and just setting up this kind of loop of being able to uh, go get Black Sun Zenith with, with Liliana Vest, make people discard cards, you know, get back the Black Sun Zenith if I need it at any time. Like, it was... You know, they're, they're, they're fun. They're powerful. I, I mean, cards are cards. That's one thing that I, 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 uh, I, I learned from Mike. Uh, I think, you know, Mike has, uh, Mike Flores has, you know, contributed quite a bit of theory to the game of magic. Uh, and one of the things that he, I think is really significant. I don't know if he's ever really written about this, but it's just his idea that just like, you know, everybody has access to the same cards and, you know, a card is just a card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, it seems, I guess maybe it's too simple to be really a theory, but like, you know, this is, this is what we have to work with. So, uh, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not a big complainer. You don't, you don't see me griping a lot. Do you, do you, do you even like magic? I love magic. Did, uh, and you don't like complaining. This is, I'm really confused. You've really I mean, thrown, thrown me off my game here, Brian. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I mean, like, <laughs> these guys have been doing this for 17 years now, right? Like, yeah, they know what they're doing. Like, you know, none of us thought this game would be around seven years. You know what I mean? Like, we had no idea when we first started playing that seven years later, uh, the game would be going. <laughs> Seventeen years later, right? And like, I think it's crossed the, the the threshold where it's just, you know, I think we get here, come back twenty five years from now, people are still going to be playing it, right? It just crossed into that evergreen territory. Oh yeah, I mean, I think they've done a fantastic job and. Make no mistake. I mean, I, I I like Planeswalkers. It's just uh, it's definitely one of the more interesting things they've done, and I, it just uh, seems like it's one of those things where people have a really varied responses to how they feel about them. I, I would like more things that mold Chamblered Planeswalkers, like O Ring. Yeah, losing O Ring is a pretty big deal. Yeah, and uh, you know, I would like I would I would like more ways to interact with them, or more ways to you know. Uh, you know, sideboard for them or, or deal with them. But I think, I, I feel like that has to come, right? I think we'll, we'll just see more of that as there's also this now, you know, a couple of years of history of how these things function in a tournament environment. Yeah. Well, it's really hard too, because now that mythics exist, nothing feels more mythic than planeswalkers, which is kind of unfortunate that the, it's like two card types that people have problems with that are perfectly melded together. What is your favorite card? Gaia's Blessing. Gaia's Blessing? Yep. Why? 
uh, just does, it's like the perfect, like, do nothing card that I love. <laughs> and, you know, it's like shuffling your graveyard back into your library. It's drawing a card. You know, I love, I love cards that have uh, velocity, you know, where you get to like, you know, draw, draw cards off your deck and dig through your deck and do stuff. And like, I, I just enjoy, like, I, I hate when a game is at the pace of one card per turn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I mean, one of my favorite decks is that I ever built is a deck called How to Keep an Idiot Busy. Mm-hmm. And it's unclear who the idiot was, you or your opponent. But, uh, you know, and it was green, blue, white. And it was just Wraths and uh, Spot Removal and Sylvan Library and Gay is Blessing and, uh, you know, all, all sorts of, uh, all, all sorts of cards. And you would just, you would just cycle through your deck a million times. You know, and it was it was just awesome, right? I just love that. <laughs> did you run Oath of Druids? Uh, I did not. Oh no. <laughs> no, no, no. It was not that was that is that's too uh that's that's too good. Oh there was, was too much velocity. <laughs> yeah, too much velocity. I like uh but I would play with uh, oh, I'm not gonna remember the name of the card now. It's a white card where you could every anytime you would draw a card you could put a counter on it. And then if there were three counters on it, you could draw seven cards. You could sack it to draw seven cards. I don't remember. I, at first I thought you were talking about Hoofprints of the Stag, but that is not Hoofprints. No, it is not. It is not. It was it was a white enchantment, and you could skip a you could anytime you would draw a card, you could skip that draw and put a counter on it. So basically with Sylvan Library, you could um skip all three draws from Sylvan Library. Not have to pay eight life because you weren't there were no cards to actually put back, mm-hmm. and then draw seven cards. <laughs> so I had that little engine in there, <coughs> but uh, yeah, get Gaze Bus is probably pretty much my favorite card. What about your favorite block? Uh, I love Champion's Block. I know, I know. Are you I- trolling me? What's what's happening here? <laughs> I love my favorite draft format is triple champions. I love it. Oh, you are a sick man. Yeah, I, I love triple champions, but uh, well, that's good because you can get in like seven or eight drafts in like an hour. Yeah, yeah, I I, I love that format. I, I like uh, champion champions uh, betrayers also. So did you like Zendikar? Because Zendikar felt very champs to me, where it's just if one person got the temple, they just rolled you by turn four. Yeah, yeah, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed Zendikar. I, I know a lot of people didn't really like it as much as far as the draft format. Man, I, you know, I just opened up. I had like, uh, I, I was on my, you know, just at the office yesterday and I found, we were going through, I was looking for some cards and I found like a box of like 60 booster packs that were all like draft sets of Zendikar World Weight. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, I'm never gonna, I'm just never gonna draft these, right? Like I'm never, certainly never gonna draft you know, uh, all of them, right? I'm never going to do this many drafts. So uh, I was like, you know, I could still use the cards, and I'm good to send it. So I just cracked, like, most of them. You know, I, I think I, I saved, like, eight draft sets. And it was shocking to me how many constructed playables are in a pack of Zendikar. Yeah. You know, like, and constructed playable is a fairly broad term, right? Like, it, I mean, you know, like the... uh like the Elvis Champion guy from, uh, you know, the guy that you could search up with Nissa Ravane. Right. You know, counts as a constructive playable. I mean, people played it. Like, 
you know, like any card that could conceivably end up in a in a constructed deck. But still, there's there were packs where it was like eight cards that have seen constructed play. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, all the landfall stuff. It just works so well together too. Like yeah, all all of Boros is in there. Right, 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 right. And then there's all the all the white weenie cards that have seen play and like. Like, all of that equipment, right? Like, you know, it's so funny, right? Like, you know, it was like this very top-down design, right? Adventuring gear, trusty machete. Uh, like, that was all, like, this very kind of, like, flavorful design, right? Yeah. Like, you know, that you were going to get this, like, equipment, and you were going to hack through the jungle, and, you know, you were going to put on your adventuring gear and your boots and your... And uh, it's amazing to me how much of that was ended up being playable, right? You've definitely seen trusty machete and constructed decks. Certainly, adventuring gear is is still being played in Boros at the top tables of Star City events. The first time I ever saw it was, I guess, last year when uh, Jerry T had his Koros deck. Right. I was just like, wait, adventuring gear? And now it's you know a year later, it's like, oh yeah, adventuring gear, of course. Like, yeah. And the, the first time you see someone playing a constructed deck with adventuring gear, and they're like, okay, I put adventuring gear on this guy, I play a fetch land. I move it to this guy, I break the fetch line, you're like, what? You're like, okay. What? And they both get two, what? Judge! <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I love the card. I like Xanacar Block. I don't know, my favorite block, it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to say, it's probably, um, and I always confuse Odyssey and Onslaught, but mm-hmm. for one had Wear Bear. Yeah, except one was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was that was uh was that Odyssey block? Yeah, that was Odyssey block. Yeah, I, I love I love Odyssey block. I love Werebear Mental Note. I love Grizz, Grizzly. <laughs> I love that. I love the whole threshold uh, and flashback uh, mechanics. Yeah, I'm get I'm getting excited that uh, Innistrad might be a graveyard themed set. It's, it feels like it's about that time. Garfield's back on the set. It looks yeah. all dark. I mean, he he definitely everyone gives Mark a a, a rough time for like making all the broken cards, but I think mm-hmm. a pretty high correlation of Richard Garfield working on a set and stupid things happening. You know? Uh, well, also, why do people, like, I, I know nothing about Innistrad. I haven't, I haven't seen it. I haven't, you know, I actually have no insight into it, but why do people automatically assume it's a vampire set? Okay. The common thing, all I saw was horror. Horror. Uh, yeah. So does that automatically mean vampires to people? Well, I agree, but apparently since um, Magic players love Twilight, which is... <laughs> if you want to market something to a Magic player, put Twilight on it. Sure. It's just a gold mine. Yeah. Um, I said the, the 12-year-old girls have been crushing in Star City Open. Oh, yeah, ever since, yeah. I mean, when, uh, when, I, when, I, made those, uh, when I made those drawings, I, I knew what I was doing. I was pulling in a, a certain demo <laughs> that the, the long-courted the long 12-year-old girl demographic... <laughs> Uh, but everyone claims that that's Baron Sanger lying at Liliana's feet, and from that angle, it looks like a guy with a head to me. So I have <laughs> no idea. But all right, you ready? You ready to talk some comics? Sure. I mean, as long as we don't have to talk about comics that have come out in the last ten years or so, because I I won't, you know, like I I don't know if you ask me about Blackest Night, I'm gonna not know anything. I don't know, you know, I I was looking something up for someone the other day, and they were like talking about, I was looking up, uh, like, some DC comic book character, and it was like, there's, like, some new Earth, I don't even know, it's, like, New Earth, or I don't even know, I was like, what the hell is this? So, you know, if it's if it's modern comics, I'm not going to know much about it, that's all I'm wanting. No, basically, I want to talk exclusively about Yellow Kid, 
And, uh, <laughs> so we both love comics, but apparently only one of us founded a comic book company. Um, you were one of the co-founders of Malibu Comics. Um, can you tell me about how, how that started? And for those people who don't know, Malibu was an independent comic company that was pre-Image Comics. Like, Image Comics always gets credit as, like, being the first, but they were the first creator-owned. Malibu did some creator-owned, some not creator-owned stuff. Uh, I mean, Matt, it goes, it goes way back. I was, I was a teenager. And, uh, I was working for a comic book company in Brooklyn called Deluxe Comics, which published a comic book called Wallywood's Thunder Agents. Yeah. Uh, and I actually, uh, got to edit, uh, I, I got a job as an assistant editor there, eventually was a full editor there, and then actually got to, uh, write some comics for them. Which was pretty exciting. Like my first, the first comic book I ever wrote was, uh, written, penciled and inked by, uh, Rich Buckler. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was supposed to be George Perez, which was uh, pretty much a big come down, but. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I also drew a comic, I also wrote a comic that was drawn by Paul Smith. Oh, Paul Smith is awesome. Yeah, uh, pretty, pretty awesome. And then I wrote a comic there that was penciled and inked by Kyle Baker. Oh, Kyle Baker also. Awesome. Although his new digitally stuff is a little weird. His his old stuff was a little weird too. Like the, <laughs> the thing with Kyle is Kyle 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 loves to like do stuff. Uh, he's almost like a jazz illustrator. You know what I mean? He's just like, let's see how this goes. You know? uh, but uh, so I was doing doing stuff there and uh, met um, someone who was interested in funding a, a comic book company, and I was working with some people, and we had some. Some projects that uh, were, you know, the D- Deluxe was trying to compete with Marvel and DC. You know, they like they were they you know I, I I was you know at the time editing the Futurians by David Cockrum and we had Keith Giffen working for us and you know what I mean they were they were trying to go dollar for dollar with Marvel Marvel and DC and you know use all this established talent and over the course of of that experience I met a lot of people who were up and coming. Uh, you know, artists sort of in the in the bowels of artists' alley at the comic book conventions. You know what I mean? Like those guys who would like have you know they've just sort of like uh you know um just like camped out at a at a at an empty table in artist alley and are doing sketches and right. So, uh, you know, I met uh, <coughs> like uh, Evan Dorkin and uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and uh, Scott Hanna and uh, Richard Case and Dean Haspiel and these were all guys who were, you know, really coming up through the ranks, uh, and, and, uh, looking for work and looking for opportunities. And I was like, well, you know, I think, you know, and I, I took a lot of these projects to go off and they're like, no, we're not, that's not what we want to do. We don't want to use these kind of guys. You know, we want to use established talents. So I was like, well, I'm going to go and start a comic book company where we can just, you know, do some, do some interesting new stuff. Like I'm, I'm much more interested in, you know, you know, making, you know, get, get, that, that was just much, much more my, my interest, you know, especially as a young guy. I mean, I was really young. Uh, you know, I was, I always felt a little out of my element dealing with, you know, guys who were twice my age, you know, so you wanted to work with, you know, people who were in the same sort of on the same footing as I was. 
and uh, you know, and that's how and that's how we started. You know, we we did a couple of comics. Uh, it, it was originally called Eternity Comics. It was operated out of Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Uh, it was a, a motley crew of people. Uh, one of our main editors was John Arcudi, who's actually gone on to be a pretty successful comic book writer in his own right. Uh, you know, Evan, Evan did a book called Pirate Core for us. Uh, you know, Jimmy became one of our all-star inkers. <laughs> um, you know, we, uh, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. And then eventually, uh, that it was, uh, the Scott Rosenberg who, who financed the company and who financed, uh, eventually rolled a couple companies together and we formed something called Malibu Entertainment. And then, uh, at some point I sold my share in the company rather than move to California. And, uh, and then the company did some, some, you know, had, had some pretty, uh, exciting, uh, death throes as it were, you know, where they, they ended up actually publishing the first, uh, image comics. Right, we're actually published through Malibu. Right. Right. All the number ones of Image came out through Malibu, and uh, uh, Men in Black came out through Malibu, and uh, eventually they did the Ultraverse. But I was, I was, I was long <laughs> Oh, excuse me, if you were still there for the Ultraverse, but no, no, no. no. Uh, I was, I was, I was there before it was cool. <laughs> before it became extreme, is Codename Firearm the most 90s comic book title. What, what's it called? Codename colon firearm. I don't even know what that is. It was one of the uh, Ultraverse comics. I, uh, <laughs> I just, that one just stuck with me for some reason. Yeah. I did, uh, I did, I did, the, it's funny, the book that I, I thought you were saying something else, the book that I wrote that uh, was illustrated by Paul Smith was Codename Danger. Which was, oh. I, I always thought a fairly silly name when it's on its own. I mean, yeah, I mean, same thing with uh, Thunder Agents. What a, what an acronym. <laughs> I don't even remember what Thunder... I used to know what Thunder stood for. I used to, too. Thunder Agents was one of the, the first comics I ever got because it was in one of those pre-packs or one of those repacks. Right, right. You know, where, you know, moms buy you at the supermarket for, like, $5. You get, like, you know, 20 comics that no one wants. <laughs> oh. It was, like, one of the really old, old, old ones. Oh, okay. No, not, not the recent one. Right, the actual ones that were done by, like... Like, at, not Atlas, but... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the old stuff. Or Tower Comics. Was <laughs> yes, Tower Comics. Um, well, yeah, Thunder Agents is one of those weird comics, too, where, like, everyone... Like, someone new owns it every other year. Like yeah, that, well, at the, the time that the uh, guy I was working for at Deluxe, it was unclear whether or not he had... Uh, stolen the right to do the comics. And he claimed, in an interesting defense, he claimed that the comics were actually, that the characters were actually public domain and anyone could publish them. Which I thought was sort of an interesting way to, you know, really, you know, cut the legs out from under yourself. Yeah. 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 As a result, a number of different people ended up, uh, uh, you know, uh, Owning them, and his claim for that was was actually undermined by me. He was like, "Oh, you know, <laughs> you know, we were, uh, you know." He's like, "Yeah." So they never copyrighted the first issue of Thunder Agents, was basically his claim. And then, like, I guess we had, you know, archive copies, and I was like, "Well, what's this right here?" <laughs> that's that's that was a different one. 
Yeah. I was like, what's this little copyright 1960-something? He's like, Arr. <laughs> So do you have a, a favorite all-time comic book story? Uh, I mean, like, uh, when you mean, like, a story about comics or a, com- a story that appeared in a comic? Oh, a story uh, that appeared in comics. Like, a story, like either a storyline, a standalone issue. Like, what's your, what's your, uh, like... For the man who has everything, Alan Moore's Superman story. Uh, and that was illustrated by Dave Gibbons in... I think it was Superman Annual Number Nine or something. The one where Superman goes on a, a trip inside his mind. Yeah, Superman, Superman uh, versus and Superman, Batman, Robin, and Wonder Woman versus Mongol. Yeah, it's absolutely it. It was uh, pretty pretty mind blowing for me. I mean, I love uh, I fell in love with Alan Moore's stuff. I uh, actually I was I was at the Lux. I I wanted a, I tried to hire Alan Moore. This is even before he did. Uh, Swamp Thing. We had I had gotten um, a hand. I uh, got my hands on the uh, Warrior magazine, which was uh, this black and white British magazine put out by a guy named Des Skin, who and it had in this original comic were serialized V for Vendetta and Marvel Man, uh. and which eventually became Miracleman. And it was just like, oh my god, this is amazing. And then, uh, as, as, as a result of that, I sought out the, you know, uh, you know, started reading the Swamp Thing stuff and the man who has everything, or the, or for the man who has everything, you know, became a, a, a lifelong Elmore fan. Yeah, yeah. Mir- Miracle Band is one of those weird comic book stories where, speaking of like owning the rights to it, like no one ever knows who owns the rights to Miracle Man. Yeah, I think technically Marvel owns the rights to it now, right? Yeah, apparently we're finally, finally, finally going to get the trade. Of that, uh, I think they, they solicited it a while ago. Then it was coming down the road, and I still haven't seen anything about it in a while. It's actually going to be called Marvel Man, right? Um, I can't I can't even remember this at this point. <laughs> like, it's been I just like trying to remember whether Shazam is called Captain Marvel or Shazam these days. Like I don't know. Right. And I mean, the, the funny the funny thing about it is, right? Like it's all this battle for the rights over the comic, you know, and who owns it, and it's just a ripoff of Shazam. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's, at its core, right? It's just like, it's just a ripoff of Captain Marvel. But edgier. Uh, oh, it's, it's so much, it's, it's, <laughs> a lot edgier. I love Captain Marvel, but you know, Captain Marvel is, you know, this sort of golden age, innocent, you know, fun comic. Whereas, you know, Miracle Man is this, the, the perfect example of like the amazing stuff that came out in the late 80s. From the independent uh, and international comic book markets. Yeah, I I love the original Shazam or the original Captain Marvel stuff. I could look at CC Beck's artwork all day. Absolutely, I I guarantee you that like we're two of the five people that will encounter this podcast who like <laughs> we say CC Beck. I mean, he's I just I love really simple, clean, cartoony stuff, and like his stuff is just amazing, and it's just it's just so. It's the kind of ridiculous, like, if you've seen, like, the panel of the day stuff I do, like, it's just the ridiculous kind of comic stuff that I love. I mean, like... I, I love the, the panel of the day, which was the, everyone you've touched will eat their doom. <laughs> yes. Everyone's thinking about their loved ones and their wives and Batman's like, oh, God, Robin, what have I done? <laughs> it's kind of a, you know, you know, people don't understand where that sort of, you know, partnership stories of Batman and Robin come from. It was stuff like that. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the other thing, too, that's amazing about Captain Marvel is that he's basically Superman, and his arch enemy is a telepathic worm that wears a radio around his neck. Well, what, what's that? What's that? Oh, is that Mastermind or? Mr. Mind. Mr. Mind, yeah. Yeah, it is, it is a talking tiger in a suit named Talkie Tawny. I mean, yeah. come, come on. And his, his Uncle Marvel is sort of like just yeah. a superhero and everyone humors him. Yeah, fat, fat, fat Marvel and Mary Marvel. It's He's basically an Alzheimer's-ridden superhero with no powers, and everyone just humors him. I mean, it's fa- he's family. <laughs> so, yeah. I, you mentioned that you don't follow a lot of current stuff, but do you have any uh, artists or writers that are, are working currently that you really like? Uh, so, I mean, my, as I've gotten older, my, my tastes have really, while while I still love a, a, a you know a superhero thing, my I mean, my favorite artist. Uh, so my favorite superhero artist is Amanda Connor. Sure. I, I love Amanda's stuff. I think she's super talented. Uh, has nothing to do with the fact that she's, you know, you know, Jimmy's life partner. <laughs> mm-hmm. It actually is like, she's just like, I think, insanely talented. I actually edited, uh, a four issue comic she did for, uh, Crusade Comics a couple of years ago. Uh, well, I mean, a couple, by a couple of years ago, I actually mean 15 at this point. Um, you know, so she, she's one of my, I think she's, she's amazing, but my favorite artist still working is, is Jaime Hernandez. Like, I mean, Jaime Hernandez, I mean, you were talking about loving clean line. Like this is, I, I, I could just look at his comics. I, I, I reread them all the time. I have my Los Locus hardcover and I, I go to that all the time for just like looking at great storytelling, great writing, great artwork. Uh, I mean, Gil- Gilbert, I love Gilbert also, but like, Jaime, Jaime is just so clean and so beautiful. Uh, I actually used, when, when Carl and I, uh, got married years ago, I used, um, a panel from a hundred rooms for our uh, wedding invite. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Do you have the, um, they've recently started putting out like those giant love and rockets trades. Do you have any of those? I have the, I have the giant hardcovers. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Those, those those are right next to my uh Windsor McKay collections and my Prince Valiant collections and uh, Flash Gordon collections. It's just like, you know, great. Right, I'm pretty jealous of the Windsor McKay ones because those are f- a fantastic looking collection, but man, they are a little little out of my price range currently. Well, I, I actually don't have any of the new ones. I actually have like this uh, oversized hardcover from like 1975 that I found at a bookstore for like 20 bucks. Oh man, that, yeah, th- those are fantastic. That collects all the Sunday um, <coughs> emails. All right, so here's here's one for you. Who is your favorite superhero and your favorite supervillain? Uh so uh, I mean I. I, can I can I can I pick one I created? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, uh, about ten years ago, I did a I created a, a comic book for for Marvel called uh, the Craptacular B Sides, <laughs> uh, which was about these really like. Uh, uh, can I curse on this podcast? Uh, we're trying to avoid it. Okay, all right. So really, just crappy superheroes. Sure. You know, they're just like they're they're from this town in New Jersey where like that has just spawned a ton of superheroes, and they're like. Uh, for whatever reason, that would never got explained because the book didn't last very long. But <laughs> uh, they uh, they're sort of like the last uh, 
people to come out with powers as sort of whatever as whatever phenomenon was happening in this town tailed off. And they they've always just sort of uh, felt like they were entitled to be great superheroes and have never worked at it or done anything. And they've just kind of slacked through high school and are now, uh, you know, waiting for someone to, you know, waiting for the call from the Avengers or, or waiting for the new warriors to call them. You know what I mean? No one's coming and calling. And uh, uh, one of them was called Mize. <laughs> Uh, so Mize and Fate Ball are, are, are two of my uh, favorite uh, superheroes that I've ever created. But uh, my, my actual favorite uh, – super, favorite superhero is really tough. I loved Nova as a kid. Awesome. Uh, and I've always – you know, Rich Riders – the Rich Rider Nova is, is, probably, uh, is probably one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, the uh, New Warriors were a pretty big part of my uh, early comic books. Yeah, yeah. And uh, villain-wise, that's pretty tough. I mean, I think I'm just going to go with Doctor Doom. Yes. I'm just going to go with, like, Doctor Doom, drawn by Jack Kirby, with, like, big, bubbling bolts of energy spilling out of his gauntlets heavy onto the floor. Yeah. That would be my my favorite. Yeah, Doctor Doom's great, because that guy just gets it. Like, (laughs) he's, he's such a drama queen. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh no, I have a scar on my face. Please sear me with a piece of hot metal. <laughs> There's, there was a, a, a panel I posted where, you know, he's talking with Tony Stark and Tony Stark's like, you know, that's a pretty sweet Renoir you've got on your, uh, on your wall. And Doom's like, yeah, I had two more. And Tony's like, well, where are they? And he's like, I burned them. And Tony's like, wait, my God, those are Price's artworks. Why? And he, Doom just responds, they displeased me. <laughs> It's just so ridiculous because that is in no way a threatening move by a supervillain, but like Doom just knows that like constantly doing this kind of stuff just it's just worth it. He's he's the Charlie Sheen of supervillains. <laughs> yeah, I mean Yeah, I know, he just he cracks me up. Alright, so we're getting about towards t- to the end here, but uh I hear you crossing questions off. Yeah, oh my god, you know all my secrets. Wait, wait, way too prepared for me. I, I don't <laughs> What do you think has been the best comic book movie you've seen? And conversely, what's been the worst? Uh, any number of Fantastic Four movies are the worst. Uh, they're, they're amazing. Fantastic Four, the first one, is like one of my favorite bad movies well, ever. The, which one, right? Like the Roger Corman one? Oh, I mean, that, that does, I mean, that doesn't even count. That was like, you know, a guy covered in like cheese whiz for the thing. Right, right. And the, uh, it's funny. So, I was, uh, when the, when the second one came out, right, whatever that one was, uh, not the current incarnation, but yeah, that one, we, uh, the guy who played Reed Richards did a signing at Jim Hanley's Universe, so the story I was talking about, mm-hmm. and, uh, one of the guys who was my partner at Mitchell Ground ended up having to drive Reed Richards around to all the stores, and the guy who played Reed Richards was like this complete pompous windbag. <laughs> Right? And he would, he would talk like this. You know, he talked through clenched teeth. And, uh, he was really stressed about, um, doing the signing because he was going to some event on Ivana Trump's arm, uh, that evening. <laughs> right? Like some, like some preposterous, like, like I've got to go to these three comic book stores in Staten Island, New Jersey, and New York. And then I have to get back to my hotel, change into a tuxedo, and go out with Ivana Trump, right? 
Yeah, we've all been there. Yeah. So, uh, and Jim Driver, and he's talking, and he's like, and he's just completely stressed, and he's just making Jim drive faster and faster. And he's like, come on, make that lunge. Come on. Good boy. Good boy. <laughs> so that's what I think of when I think of that Fantastic Four movie. But, like, the thing is, Jessica Alba is such a talentless actress. Oh, she is yeah. so terrible that the the new Fantastic Four movies are probably the worst movies ever made, like superhero wise. Well, I also love like little things in superhero movies. Like you're going to make a superhero movie; it's a ridiculous premise. But I always love the lines that people aren't willing to cross when they make movies. Like we're making a movie about a guy who can stretch, a guy who can set himself on fire, and the bad guy's name is Victor Von Doom. That's ridiculous. We're going to call him Victor Van Dam. <laughs> like, it's just absurd to me that that's it's the line you won't cross. Like, that name is just completely unbelievable. It takes, you out, of, takes that, you out of the movie. That's one of the things that makes comics great, right? Like, I've always loved, I always loved the, the sort of, like, like your name fates you to what you're going to be in the Marvel Universe, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, I'm an electrician named Sparky Bolts, and, like, I'm fixing a power line on a rainy night. It's like... Uh, what, what's going to happen here? I'm sorry, Vincent Stegron. <laughs> <laughs> but to become a dinosaur monster. <laughs> you know, when you hit puberty. Uh, you know, my favorite is, uh, it's it's a line that I, I used in, in the B-sides about this character who, like, chose an unfortunate villain name. And as a result, people keep confusing him with Dr. Octopus. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Dark. And he's like, and do you know people really expect you to be an actual doctor? You know? He's like, Dr. Strange. I mean, his name is, is really strange. No, I mean it. His name is actually strange. He's actually Dr. Strange before he ever becomes a superhero. <laughs> you know, I, I love that. I, why would you ever change that? Why would you ever change Victor Von Doom's name? Yeah. But, uh, fa- favorite superhero, favorite comic book movie is tough, right? Like there's, uh, you know, do you, do you go Ghost World? You know, uh, or, uh. Well, you, you can go Ghost Road. You certainly can't go Art School Confidential, because that's. No, 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 I'm not going to go Art School Confidential. Terrible. I'm not going to go Art School Confidential. I think, uh, I, I actually love The Phantom. With, uh, Frazier? With Brandon Frazier? Is that, is it Brandon Frazier? Is it Billy Zane? And... You, you might be right. I, I, I think that was during an era where like Brandon Fraser was like the Nicolas Cage of movies and like he just had every role. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it, I think it's Billy Zane as, as the Phantom. It's, it's to me, it's like this completely embraces the goofiness of, you know, pulp superhero stuff. Yes, and do you remember the tagline for that movie? No. Slam evil. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, how about that? <laughs> I, I really like the Phantom, uh, and uh, I mean, just in, in of the of the modern films, like uh, first Iron Man is just kind of perfect. Uh, Donnie Jr. is surprisingly good in that. I mean, I, I still, t- to me, it's still just like a, a decent action movie. Like everyone always assumes that, like because I like comics, I'm just gonna lose my sh- my lose my mind <laughs> uh, over those ones. And like I don't know, you know, it's entertaining, but like I. I literally don't lust for those movies. Yeah, but at all. The, the Iron the Iron Man stuff is secondary, right? It's just like Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark. Yeah. That 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 makes the that makes the film really work. Yeah, because like, like the nerdy nitpicky thing is it's, it's, it's the, the worst in the second movie where like if you're a robot, 
You get shot once and you just fall to pieces. If you're a guy in in a suit of armor with a condition, yeah, you can take infinite damage. It doesn't matter. Like there's that sequence at the end of the second one where um, War Machine and Iron Man are fighting off like 400 robots and like they're just crumbling when they're touched and they're made out of the same armor that their suits are. It's uh... yeah, no, 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 absolutely. I just, I just, I, I, I. I find the, I, I, I think the superhero stuff in the first Iron Man movie is perfectly serviceable. And yeah. then the Tony Stark stuff is so, it's like so many of the superhero movies, you get someone playing the alter ego and it's just this cipher. You know, you just get some, some really blank performance. And like, I just felt like he really embraced that kind of, uh, you know, swagger and, drunkenness and, and wantonness of Tony Stark that, you know, in a, in a way that, that really captured everything I really liked about Iron Man comics. Yeah. All right, well, Brian, it was awesome talking to you, but that is about where I need to wrap it up here before I just talk about comics with you for, you know, the next four hours. Yeah. Um, you have a blog where you write often. You want to tell people where they can check out stuff that you do? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I occasionally update top8magic.com, you know, uh, sporadic podcasts and, uh, the occasional update. And then obviously, you know, you can, you can read my stuff on, uh, daily MTG on Fridays where I do the week that was. Awesome. Well, Brian, once again, thank you for being on the show. It was awesome talking to you. Ah, thanks, Justin. I really appreciate it.